0: The Collective Whisper Podcast with Simon Kane. Hello, everybody, and welcome to this week's podcast. Glad to have you on board again, guys, and uh, we hope you stay tuned for further episodes. Tonight, we have a very special guest. But before I tell you about the guest, just want to remind you guys to please follow the show review if you can. It would be the brilliant thing for us, you know, if you tell us how you feel about the show and, you know, follow wherever you can, Instagram, Facebook, wherever you see us. We're all over. Thank you very much, guys. Okay, so today I'd like to welcome Patrick Kilpatrick. So Patrick Kilpatrick is one of the finest Screen television character actors of his generation. Playing against the spectrum of Hollywood's leading action heroes, Patrick Kilpatrick's entertainment career has spanned more than 170 films and television shows as lead actor, producer, screenwriter, director, and global entertainment teacher. From Minority Report with Tom Cruise to Dark Angel with Jessica Alba, he has appeared in over 75 hit TV shows such as 24, Dr. Quinn Medicine Woman, and all. CSI. His action film villain appearances embrace a multitude of genres and an international who's who of directors, writers, production talent, and leading men and women of the last quarter century. The Replacement Killers, nineteen ninety eight, director Antoine Foucault against Yuen-Fat Chow, Arnold Schwarzenegger, and James Caan in A Razor, nineteen ninety six, Last Man Standing, opposite Bruce Willis, Under Siege Two, Dark Territory, opposite Steven Seagal, The Presidio. Opposite Sean Connery and Mark Harmon to award me in highly original cable westerns, opposite Tom Selleck, Last Stand at Sabre River, and the ever popular action mainstay Death Warrant, 1990, opposite Jean Claude Van Damme as the Sandman. He has even done battle with the largest mammal on Earth in Free Willied 3, The Rescue, in 1997. His further and recent work includes the film Parasomnia from director Bill Malone, the Sarah Connor Chronicles, Burn Notice, all NCIS franchises, and the film American Violence with UFC light heavyweight champion of the world, Steve Mio. Kilpatrick is president and CEO of Uncommon Dialogue Films. He has taught acting, auditioning, directing, producing and film distribution, main in the movies, Star Trek and stage combat at the University of Wisconsin. Kilpatrick has prepared full film school curriculum for the governments of Brazil and Nigeria while privately in group entertainment coaching in Los Angeles and via Skype. He's appearing in theater, stores and Netflix in American Violence and Assassin X, Cops and Robbers with UFC light heavyweight champion Quentin Rampage Jackson, Blackwater with Jean-Claude Van Damme and Dolph Lundgren, upcoming Catalyst and Nightwalk filmed in Casablanca, Morocco, also as invited teacher in Marrakesh. As a voiceover performer, he's appeared as the voice of Sailplane Grand Prix, the narrator of the Olympic IMAX movie. Patrick Kilpatrick was also in the running for the governor of California. So welcome to the show, Patrick. Patrick Kilpatrick, welcome to the show.
1: Well, thank you for having me. I've got my rose dip tea uh, just coming out of this production, and uh, it's great to see you.
0: We've been back and forth messaging, and we had some hiccups, but we're finally here, and sometimes those are the best interviews when you finally get together.
1: Well, hope springs eternal. (laughs)
0: I love it. I love I love the enthusiasm. It still could turn into a
1: major debacle. Exactly. So, uh, one never knows.
0: No. So tell me, right now, are you in L.A. or what part of the world are you in?
1: Yeah, I'm in L.A. I'm in an area called Hancock Park, which is where I live and have lived for many years. Um, it's a building that was owned by Mae West, who I don't know if you know who she was.
0: But, yeah, the actress. Yes, yes.
1: Yeah. Um great force and energy, uh, of her. And I like to think I'm contributing to the energy and force here. Um, many, many film people have lived here. It's a landmark building and we've actually been involved in a struggle with the landlord that we're winning, um, because they weren't keep doing their bit to keep the historical nature of the building up. And so, um, we called down the press on them. Okay. So that's an, another story. So
0: but I can imagine in that kind of a building with all of those great actors and artists that went before, you kind of have a great energy in the building and it's a shame to lose that, isn't it?
1: Well, it is and it's amazing how the regimes, the the generations go over. I mean, I I I mean, I think you probably appreciate writers. Um James Elroy was in the parking spot next to me and he wrote LA Confidential and American Tabloid, which is, I think, one of the great, great, great American books about the Kennedy years and the Kennedy assassination, an extraordinary writer. And so when you're living in a place where somebody like James Elroy is in the parking spot next to you and you're conversing with them, to me, I get a big kick out of that. Um Clark Gable lived here. Um, I mean, God knows the, shen- the shenanigans that went on in this building. I mean, I, every day when I swim in the pool, I think, how many people made love in this pool uh, over the decades? So um, it's it's served me well to live here. Um, uh, my wife and I now have two p- apartments here. Uh separated by 34 steps and so i've come to the conclusion that if if i was dating again which i don't ever intend to do in my lifetime um for because i'm married till death do us part but uh i think it would be hard to actually have to date if it was further away than 34 steps
0: 34 Steps sounds like the title of a great movie, doesn't it?
1: It's a great, great building. Architecture, is, I recently did a film in Belgium and uh, Brussels, and I was kind of blown away by some of the architecture over there, too. My son's an architect. Um, of course, he's consumed by eco-sustainability and things like that.
0: Carbon footprints. and
1: Yeah, which is very, very important. Um There's a lot to be said for the renovation of all of these older buildings.
0: I suppose, you know what it is? It's keeping that heritage alive because when you consider the history and the work that went into these buildings in the initial stages and then the people who lived there, not to mention the swimming pool and all the amazing parties that went on there, it's a shame to lose that because you have these UNESCO World Heritage Sites all around the world, but when it comes to artists and creations, like whether it be a a, a recording studio or a film studio or a place where lots of actors lived, these places should be kept, no?
1: I think so. It's like the theaters in L.A. Most of them have, Uh, when I first got here, you know, Mm -hmm. that era of the theaters where literally an organ would come up from the orchestra pit Mm -hmm. and they would play the music coming up. Most of those places have been turned into pretty grand venues, and um, but it's not just an L.A. thing. In Richmond, Virginia, where I went to college, you know, I would go to movies and a guy would come up with an organ in the middle uh, at the beginning of the movie
0: and play. And so... Like the church. He probably yeah. had a job in the church and the theater.
1: Exactly. Yes, just like the church, which takes you right into, like, the Baptist religion is so intrinsically connected to the church in the South and even in England and Ireland and all of that. How many vocalists came out of the church experience? Um, so uh, it's an amazing thing.
0: Look at Sinead O'Connor. Look, I mean, Sinead O'Connor, she rebels against the church but a lot of her songs and the lyrics come from that angst of being, you know, a good Catholic and the sins of the father and all of these kind of things. So it's amazing the way the church can be intrinsically linked with a lot of art.
1: Yes. And it's been linked with a lot of liberation movements at its best. It's also been linked with a lot of tyranny uh, throughout the the world. So uh, I guess for me, it, the human experience is kind of a mixed bag. <laughs> to say to say the least.
0: Well, I mean you you've had a great experience, you know, and and I, not just from all the movies you've done and the books you've written and you know working as a journalist, you've had a great life experience so far. Can I go back a little bit to Orange Virginia? You were born there, yes, and so can you tell us about your early life? You know, was it a was it a happy childhood for you? Did you kind of know what you wanted to be in life at an early age? Well, I consider my uh,
1: upbringing to be very very privileged uh and and really joyful because I think that's my nature. Um it was somewhat marred by uh, my mother uh had although I don't see Simon I really don't believe in negativity. Um because like we just did this production, okay? And we'd get a lead actor who would get COVID the morning of of us shooting. So on the surface, that appears to be catastrophic. But you don't even have time to embrace any kind of catastrophic thoughts. So you get on the phone and in five minutes later, you replace them with someone who actually turns out to be a net positive for the production. So, um, orange Virginia, I grew up in an extraordinary place. Uh, I had extraordinary parents. Um, my mother was had some mental issues. So it was, um, which today would probably be called bipolar and, um, Although she an extraordinarily lucid woman, she was also irrational and volatile and violent to an extreme, almost homicidal level. Um, so on the one hand, I had a great deal of education, a great deal of uh, privileged life. On the other hand, home life was a bit of a war zone uh, because of my mother's condition. Um, and... I had an extraordinary father. I mean, he was just the finest of men, a World War II hero, a national baseball champion. Uh, He founded Cigna Corporation. So on balance, I think I had an extraordinary childhood. Um, It it was very literate in the sense they rewarded me for vocabulary and those kind of activities. Uh, I wasn't allowed to watch television early on, although I snuck a lot of it. Um, So it made me read a lot of books. And that, of course, influenced me every aspect of my life. Um, A lot of horses, animals play a huge part of my upbringing. Um, uh, As far as knowing what I wanted to do in life, I always wanted to be a writer. And that's why I went to New York. I started out an athlete and just every kind of sport. And then I had a car accident when I was 17. And I went to New York to become a writer because, again, I went from reading a book a day to admiring writers. And so I went to New York and became a writer. When that became a little boring after a while, I split to write a novel. And ended up writing, a, a sharing a house with an, an actor who was becoming a huge Broadway director. And I I wrote a play instead of a novel that got produced. I kind of did it in a diff, backward way. I became an, an assistant director and a director first, and then the acting kind of took off. And so, um, you know, when I teach and I've mentored a lot of actors... It's always a multidisciplined deal. It's writing, acting, producing, directing, and to some extent teaching as a as a multiple um a multidisciplined thing. I think if you're gonna go into entertainment, then those are some skill sets that are really valuable. The musicianship is a really valuable one as well. I mean, how many actors have bands? How many actors Go out on tour. I think it's really important to have a, a creative life separate and apart from the industry. Whether you're a photographer or, a, um, all of that feeds into whatever your art form is. To me, it's all the same swirling thing.
0: Of course, for you, as you became more experienced and you had all of these other things under your belt, you know. So you you do acting, you do production, you do directing you kind of want to try your hand at all of these things, don't you? Because you're like, I could do that because it's a it's a kind of a branch off of what I have do, what I'm doing. And so we see, for example, people like Clint Eastwood, who, you know, is a fabulous actor and then goes on sure. to be a fabulous director. So you can see actors obviously thinking, yeah. I want to do that one day soon, you know.
1: Or Richard Attenborough. Yes. You know, you're talking about a character actor. He was always an inspiration to me because he was a character actor and yet he became one of the most influential directors uh not only of his time but i think of all time uh with gandhi and a bridge too far and things like that so um i've always kind of conceived myself um i've followed that lead uh of attenborough and of course olivier all those guys you know, the idea of a, an actor who is also a producer and a writer, it's not any kind of new idea. It goes back to Shakespeare and it goes back even to the Greeks. And, you know, I just think it's part and parcel. Yes, you're absolutely correct. It's very insightful of you. It's just a natural thing. And you do it also because. You know, I think you can't criticize others. If you're not willing to get into the fray yourself, in my opinion, Um, I look at Francois Truffaut, you know, he was a film critic. And then I think at some point you say, I can't truly criticize others if I'm not willing to to enter the fray uh, on my own. Um, And I think that's important. I think God gave us discernment. God gave us judgment capabilities. But to exercise judgment without actually having walked in the shoes of other people, maybe not so. And maybe judging others is not really such a great thing. Do I think film critics and stage critics have a place? Yeah, they're enormously influential and enormously funny A lot of them. and
0: They are a little bit of a gateway to that profession, in a sense, or to a movie. So, for example, if you've never heard of a movie and a critic gives it a good review or a bad review, it might make you go and watch it. And in the past, I mean, look at restaurants, even A, a, a food critic says, oh, this is a terrible restaurant or it's a fabulous restaurant. But it's kind of like all publicity is good publicity. So critics kind of help that cause, don't they?
1: Yes, I think that's right. I never don't see a movie because it's gotten a bad review, because I I think these things are so subjective, and also, but it does add to the intellectual enjoyment of the film for me. Um, uh, and sometimes let's may said critics can point out things that you might never have given a thought to uh, if it wasn't so. Um. I remember mostly critics influenced when I was working on the stage in in New York. And I, I always got good reviews, but I also found critics really, really in fun and almost institutionally humorous, if you know what I mean.
0: Yes, yes. You
1: know, the more salacious and scathing it was on a personal level it's completely inappropriate as criticism but it can be really entertaining reading I, it's funny the topics that we get off on
0: your dad obviously you know when i when i look researching you more and i you know i have to say i had seen you a lot in movies as I was growing up, because I was a big, you know, Van Damme fan, and I was into martial arts. And so I've watched a lot of those movies. Death Warrant, all of those movies. But and, you know, as I said, you 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 were in most of those movies and lots of movies with with other bigger stars, even. And the one thing I always say, you know, when I when I look at your story is, you know, you seem to have incredible ambition and, and drive. And when you talk about your father there, you know, and you know, he was a beach jumper. He was a, a basketball, a baseball champion and so on. And, you know, he's Silver Star and these things. He sounded like he was a very ambitious man and he kind of never settled for second best. He, he always pushed himself. And you seem like you're very similar to that.
1: Yeah, I think there's no question I'm my father's son. The interesting thing about my father, though, um, I mean, I work sometimes till three, four in the morning or I get up and- it's it is my life the really interesting thing about my father for me one of them was I never saw him bring work home okay he I think maybe once he had a manila folder or something and so uh he was always there uh as a father um uh, in retrospect he'd come to my football games and and I'd see him in the distance walking around and he was there, but I'll bet he was thinking about how taking over corporations and (laughs) other stuff while he was, while his son was playing football on the football field. He really was an extraordinary example of manhood. Uh, And I say that without him necessarily being a father, Um, you know, you're talking about, joining the Navy at 17 with the advent of World War II, becoming an underwater demolition team guy in 1943, a decorated hero, struck out George Bush to win the National Collegiate Baseball Championship. And think about that just for a second.
0: And that's a movie there. Well, yeah,
1: think about it. These guys spent their whole young manhood in cataclysmic war from twenty, from 17 till about 25, that age range. Then they come home and they go to college on the GI Bill, which is a, a governmental thing that pays for college, uh, a great visionary program. So then you're talking about college athletes that are not young men anymore. You're talking about full-blown, battle-hardened, adult males playing college sports and, and and then my father's roommate was a guy named lou Burdett and lou burgett uh dated my mother and she he she broke up with him because he got kicked out of the university of richmond where i went for scholastic delinquency that's what it was called <laughs> scholastic delinquency so that means basically he failed every course he probably took and so he got kicked out and my mother said to my father when she dated him i won't marry you if you become a baseball player and so even though my father got offered a contract to pitch for the new york yankees okay he turned that down and married my mother Uh, I told him I would have dumped my mother in two seconds because I would have much preferred playing for the New York Yankees. But back to Lou Burdett. Lou Burdett accepted the Yankee contract, which was the farm team. It wasn't the main top team yet. But he then went on and joined the Milwaukee Braves. And the Milwaukee Braves played the New York Yankees. And I think it was... I forget the exact year, maybe 1954 World Series, and Lou Burdett won three games out of four. It's arguably the greatest World Series performance by a single pitcher in the history of baseball. Now, whether you care about baseball or not, or anything, the fact that this guy, and, and I think one or two games were perfect games. That means nobody got on base. Nobody got a hit. He beat the New York Yankees and he was my father's roommate and he dated my mother and and he got kicked out for scholastic delinquency. So
0: that's a perfect beginning to an amazing career, because, you know, it's always the people like that who get kicked out for delinquency or, you know, being non-academic who go on sometimes achieve amazing things.
1: Sure. Well, he certainly does. And by all accounts, was a really genial guy. I actually did some research on him for the second volume of this memoir that's written. But I'm very lucky when COVID started, I was happily polishing the, the second volume of this memoir. And but then I started getting hired as a script writer and a producer. And that kind of took over and I put a team together. And that's what we've been doing ever since. But sooner or later, that second book has got to come out. Um,
0: Of course, it'll find its own way. Yeah,
1: it'll it'll uh, God willing. um, It'll find it's all show business all the time.
0: Can I ask you there? You mentioned, obviously, about having the, you know, a really bad car crash when you were 17. So Mm. you had to rehabilitate yourself. And, you know, obviously, then the industry you are going into doing your own stunts and everything. Was your body in a very bad way? Like, you, did you break a lot of bones? I broke my back.
1: Basically, a vertebra exploded. Um, and uh, I was very lucky that I ever walked again. Uh, I know I had a similar f- a friend in high school who had a similar injury, and he never really walked again. I, it was touch and go. They actually took, told my parents I might not ever walk again and of course that didn't happen and once again about the negative events so you're a high school athlete star in a lot of different activities and then you have this car accident and on the surface it seems like terrible cataclysmic life changing event but it was actually a blessing because uh, because I couldn't play sports for 10 years. I became a writer. And I also became very familiar with, yes, to answer your question, my body was really messed up, and uh, but I became acquainted with massage and chiropractic and rehabilitative exercise and very balanced exercise. And so when I found my way back, I did play rugby about 10 years later. When I found my way back to that and I found my way to acting, what did I have then? I had the mind of a writer. I had the body of an athlete again. And I had the ability to go to war cinematically with people like Jean-Claude Van Damme and all those people and put myself back together. I sometimes meet people who've never had a cataclysmic injury. So as a consequence, they've never had a massage. Well, guess what? Massage is a secret weapon for an actor because it removes all of the tension that you're you're going through. Okay, And it allows the work to be as pristine as possible. And also, it keeps you healthy. You know, um, so... I consider the car accident. I call them God's pivots. They're you know, they're the way God is actually sending you on the path that you belong. Uh, I, I've done a lot of work with wounded warriors, and it's that's a tough nut to to, to craft for a wounded warrior who maybe has lost three limbs and eighty five percent of their body has been burned away, but. One of the reasons i that motivates me to use those people in the movies is they may be able to look back on their wound day and say, "If I wasn't, if I hadn't gone through that, then I wouldn't be having this wonderful experience with Patrick Kilpatrick in this movie right now. It's a hard nut to think that the things that are so devastating are actually." what we need to fulfill our destiny um and it's easier for some situations it was easy for me because i put myself back together had i never walked again that might be an even more challenging thing but the truth is where would stephen hawkins be if it wasn't for his his maladies Uh, i think it's important not to succumb to negativeness um I I think yes. the concept of negativity is one that we probably should try to set aside. Uh I recently almost died from a car not a car accident from a um a surgery. And I came out of that actually with a lot of things. One that it was caused me to examine everything I'd done in life and the things that really resonated with me was that I wanted to be an angel and rather than a devil. And I think all of us have that choice on a daily basis. Um, we're all flawed, but it's much better to be a protector and an angel than it is to be on the other side. That's why things like what Putin is doing are so incomprehensible. Um they come so much out of ego and so much out of whatever his vision of history. I get the point of view.
0: There's a line, isn't there? This is the thing. Everybody can have an ego and have intentions, but there's a line. And when you go beyond that, you go into yeah. a different kind of category. Where, you know?
1: Yeah, you're into, a, in my opinion, a complete psychopathic. Look, society, you know, we look back and we think of Genghis Khan. And he was a great warrior and a great conqueror. When you begin to, I think on any cause, when you begin to punish the innocent, i.e. civilians and things like that, you cross that line. I actually do think that, that will be this will be the undoing of Putin.
0: This is his kind of road, but it's not going to lead to a good place because no matter what happens, if he's taken out by the Russians themselves, or if he ends up in a in a war tribunal, you know, it's the end of the road yeah. for him. It just depends how long that takes.
1: The human species is really complicated, but I think we all have to try to make an effort to be the finest people that we possibly can. And for that, I'm grateful for my father because I think he actually did that. And um, And I know even my mother, with her troubles and her challenges, she was trying to do that too. So um, I'm very lucky. I'm just a blessed man. I have wonderful children. I have interesting work to do.
0: And, you know, those beginnings, we all have them. And, you know, if you have a perfect life, which nobody has, I don't think it exists. You can have a perfect life, but then things can change. But, you know, we have these kind of triggers and catalysts in our life, whether it be, you know, an alcoholic father, whether it be, you know, an abusive grandfather, whatever it is, there's always these things and they make us who we are and they teach us not to be that other person. And how, as you said, to look at things in a more positive light.
1: Right. And to have empathy for other people who are going through those struggles. At the same time, not so much empathy that you eradicate their own will to rise out of their own issues themselves. Somebody said, You know, everybody you meet is fighting their own private war. And that's true. Um, For sure. And I'd like to, uh, I don't know. I don't know where I'm going with this, except that we don't have that long on the planet. And the effect that we have on the planet, we have to choose. Thankfully, we live in a culture where we can choose. I remember I visited Uzbekistan at one point, and you would come out of the hotel room, and to push the button for the elevator you had to go either seven or eight yards this way and around a corner or you had to go seven or eight yards down this way and that way to push the button so whichever way you went you pushed the button and then the elevator would open and you wouldn't have enough time to come back from pushing the button to get on the elevator and i always thought this thing was designed by somebody who was forced by the state wow. to become an elevator designer instead of a doctor, because it was the most perverse thing I've ever seen in my entire life. It was like
0: a game show. So,
1: <laughs> exactly.
0: <laughs> That's a test in itself. Can I ask you then, when you mentioned being a journalist and you know doing writing and, and being involved in that world... What then was the step into acting? You know, what was the thing that made you say, I want to be an actor now? I want to, you know, or did you want to be an actor before your accident? And then obviously it got sidetracked, which you thought I'm going to do it later.
1: No, the funny thing was over a decade before I became an actor, people would come up to me and go, you're an actor. I mean, I'd be on the subway and strangers would come up to me and go, you're an actor. And I'd go, what are you talking about? I'm a copywriter at Time Incorporated. You know, it's like, (laughs) so I, uh, whatever that was, I think it comes out of athletics and everything else. You're, that's, which is certainly a performance.
0: Well, it's charisma too, isn't it though? I mean, Everybody has that look and that certain charisma that other people say, if I were to imagine what this person does, maybe it's a dairy farmer, maybe it's a, you know, a a stuntman, but this guy looks like a theater actor. So maybe you had that persona.
1: Whatever it was, it was an energy. It's really funny. You know, I wrote this book about my upbringing, the first one, Dying for Living. And after I finished the book, and part of the, one of the reasons I wrote the book was to say, how did I get to this place at that point where I had been a villain in 200 films and television
0: shows? What happened to cause that to to occur? I imagine there were times you thought, are they stereotyping me here?
1: (laughs) Well, I know they were. That's institutional typecasting. But you do a good job at something in Hollywood. You know, time is precious and they have to make expedient choices and really fast and stuff. Sometimes they don't choose you because you've done so much of that stuff. But the uh, after I finished writing the book and this whole examination, and I had realized that early on, uh, even in sports, that the coaches recognized if we let this guy do his thing, He'll seek out and destroy the yes. enemy. So uh, I was given positions in football and stuff that allowed me to rove anywhere and everything. But anyway, then I, I realized after I wrote the book, I said, wait a second. In first grade, which I don't know if, if where you are, they have the same grading system. Yeah, school, yeah it's
0: similar like in first class. First, yeah.
1: first grade, we did a play called the Pied Piper of Hamlin, And they made me the evil mayor. <laughs> and I was about six years old at the time. Do you think then you had the look? I think so. There was some energy or something. They said, they didn't make me the Pied Piper. They, 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 I put a pillow on and I became the portly mayor and who, who misguides the entire town. And so... I think the energy started really, really early. You asked me how I made the jump from journalism. You know, I I did some fabulous stuff that I recall with great pride and really a lot of control. Think how cool that is. You get out of university, and first I I was doing bodyguarding for rock groups, and then I was, uh, during the day, I was working as a writer. And I did that, and I, I was in on the, the relaunching of life magazine, which is in itself a photographic icon and did a lot of great ads and copy and articles and stuff. But after about six years of that, I was like, I was kind of bored. And also, also I wrote something for life magazine and six months later, they were still dicking around with it. And I was like, and I looked at timing, which at the time that was the citadel. That was that was like the civil service of the ab- advertising business. If you got to timing, you were set for life. You'd have to be a pedophile before they get rid of you. You were. And I looked down the corridor, and all I saw was uh, guys from Yale and Harvard who were vice presidents, and and. I said, the best I'm going to do is be a vice president here at me. And and to me, a real writers do some, more than just journalism and advertising. So I left to write a novel. And like I said, I split a house in Connecticut with a, a guy named John Tillinger, who was an actor, a British actor of Iranian descent. Uh, and well, not dissent, his parents were diplomats in in Iran, but anyway, he was going from a twenty year acting career to being an absolute titan of directing on Broadway at one point, he had three hit shows, two on Broadway and one on the west end of london and so through uh he paid me two hundred bucks to babysit his kids while he went to direct this play so i I I followed him to this theater festival, to this famous theater festival in Massachusetts. And I found myself running around with Richard Dreyfuss and, and uh, Gwyneth Paltrow. She was 12 years old, her mother, Blythe Danner and um, Christopher Reeves when he was alive and Frank Langella, all these big time Eastern actors. And I became tr- intrigued by it. So I wrote a play And the play got produced in New York instead of the novel. I mean, I I started, I was mimicking Fitzgerald and Hemingway and all these guys. And by the way, you can learn how and Hunter Hunter Thompson, you can teach yourself how to write like those guys.
0: It's not copying, it's influence. Yeah,
1: but I just, it's like watching a movie. What are they doing there that's brilliant? I watched Saving Private Ryan 10 times while I'm on the elliptical bike and I'm analyzing every scene and what did they do well anyway that's what I was doing with writing so I wrote the play the play got produced and I was asked to found a theater company with some guys as the guys as the guy who would select the plays it was called literary manager at the time I joke around and say that was the I was the only guy who knew how to read So we selected the plays and we founded this theater company and it's the equivalent of, I tell actors now, do your own film, do your own film. Well, we started our own theater company and it was a great thing because then agents, if they don't come on the first play, they don't come the second play. They, maybe they come the third and you get an audition for a soap. Or you get an audition for an off Broadway play or something. So that's how I made the transition.
0: What a transition then, because obviously, as you said, you know, starring in so many movies, and, you know, even though you were, as you said, institutionally typecast, um, some amazing roles and working with some amazing actors and characters. And I can imagine, you know, it was one of these things for you that there were times where you probably did get frustrated by saying, I don't want to be the villain. But then maybe after a while you thought, no, I'm good at this. Was there moments where you felt, no, I don't want that role? There were a couple,
1: but they ended up being some of the most fun roles. Um, I did a thing for Nip Tuck. I read it and I got this is just too appalling. I can't do it. But then it turned into an iconic thing where I uh, I, I worked on it. I... I never really said, for me, playing villains was always rich ter- terrain. And I I I said, sooner or later, they're going to let me, I'm working in silver, and they're going to let me work in gold. It never really happened, but at the same time, I always got work, and I always was able to educate my children, and and I always had a good time acting. And I have been cast as the president of the United States um, and who's a good guy. And that movie hasn't been funded yet. But um, I suspect that my my institutional typecasting, which changed, began changing a long time ago with the screenwriting, is also going to change significantly after this movie dying for a living comes up, because you know, all of a sudden you're writing, directing, producing and acting and something. And so um, I just I just keep working.
0: Things change
1: that way. Even when I played a good guy, I was always killing people. <laughs> <laughs> you know, on Star Trek Deep Space Nine, I played a hero, but it was a hero who killed a lot of people. Uh, A lot of Gemma Dard.
0: Couldn't get away from that fact. You're like, I can be nice, but I have to have a body count.
1: Right, exactly. Well, you said it very succinctly. That's exactly it.
0: You know, let's go back there to obviously, you know, with working with some of the big stars like Schwarzenegger and Dolph Lundgren, Van Damme and everything. When you go into a role like that and, you know, you have the script and you know who, the actor is going to play it. Are a lot of those actors very similar in how they work? Or do you say, OK, this role is Arnie and or this role is Stallone, whatever. So I have to prepare differently. Is, are, are they, are, is there a kind of a template?
1: No, well, I have a way of approaching acting that is, I think, I evolved. I, you know, you of course, you've heard of method acting. Um, I read the book uh, called The Method which is the Bible of that, about 10 years after I was acting. And I had come up with many of the similar techniques that they were doing it. Uh, I just called it something different. I was very lucky. I ran into an acting teacher in the early days of New York. His name was Kurt Reese, and he was Canadian. And so what did that mean? It meant that he had all of the techniques from Britain and Ireland, the United Kingdom, uh, and even France. And he had all of the techniques from America and they had joined up in this Canadian director teacher. And so it really became, you know, you're not doing it the British style. You're not doing it the American style. It's like whatever the hell you got to come up with in order to make it happen. Um, And you said something very insightful before. By the time I became an actor, I was uh, 32. I had lived as a man, as an athlete, as a journalist, as a correspondent, as an advertising writer. I didn't have kids yet, but I had lived a pretty significant life up until then. So you carry that into uh, whatever you're doing. I mean, a lot of times I, I would i was also lazy so i would i would take one scene and at the time didn't want to learn more than one scene and i take that one scene around to nine different acting teachers so what did i get each one of them had something different and then eventually you had such a multi-layered performance that it 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 benefited me um i um uh, i know i don't approach working with Stallone or, although I've never worked with him, but with Arnold or any of those guys differently, I'm usually doing whatever I do at that particular time. I try to be aware of what's going on in the cinematic universe because you want to take the artistic flag further. Uh, uh, that come when you're talking about cinematic villainy and that kind of thing. Um, Uh, At this point, I really I've always been a big person about going through my technique, which is it involves subtext and a landscape that you're operating. Um, Can I do it on the fly? Sure. You can just you don't even have to do that. You just come up with things. I love improv. We do a lot of improv. In fact, I joke around and say I I deserve a score. A script writing credit for almost every movie I've been in for the last five or ten years, because mostly what I've even Death Warren. I think Death Warren, I had 10 lines, I probably made up eight of them. So, you know, um, I'm not trying to take credit. I'm just saying the bottom line is you end up you have a moment. What do you do in that moment to use the camera, to come up with something original? I mean, I did a movie recently called Borrowed Time Three in Belgium, and uh, everywhere we went, there seemed to be a dog. So I I grabbed the dog, and I improv around owning the dog, and I was playing the villain, and the universe that that worked. So, you know, I, I've seen comedians. Have you ever seen a comedian who he's the MC for an event, and the really brilliant ones, get to the event and they absorb the circumstances that's right there. And they immediately start coming out with the most scathing, funny things about the exact environment that they're in. Well, that's the process with acting too. You do the beginning work, but then you get to the environment and that environment may be very, very different from what you imagine. You know, I played a Serbian killer on NCIS, and I did all of this preparation of this very intense and very soft-spoken acting. And then I got there, and they were exploding windshields in my face while I was doing the thing. So the whole idea of doing this beautifully nuanced conversation with Simon Kelly uh on the show was completely i mean instead i had glass exploding in my face so you have to be flexible yeah <laughs> yeah you have to be flexible i mean the dialogue became hey you, you know from so you know you
0: you got to be flexible it changes the dynamic a little bit you know obviously when you're doing those big action scenes And you do run-throughs and rehearsals and there's fight choreography and everything. I'm sure that a lot of the time, um, because of the dynamics and lines change between the run-through and the actual maybe five scenes, no?
1: It's a totally living thing of its own. I mean, uh, I was directing this actor recently and in my idea, he was a French actor, okay? Okay. Well, so I came up with all of these lines that are French. Okay. To say during our fight with him. Well, I got there and he'd go, I don't know what you're doing. I don't speak French. Yes. I said, but you're a French actor. <laughs> how, you know, you're from Montreal. You're, how can you not speak French? So I ended up saying the French lines. And so, yeah, it's a completely different thing. Uh, you've got to cut you've got to be flexible you've got to do it on the wing Uh, uh, and fortunately I've been doing it long enough that that's exactly what we what what you do and it turns out to be rich and wonderful thing but you better be fast and you better be you know um, but and sometimes you're working with non-actors because maybe there's a reason why they're on the set and so you've got to be able to elicit a great performance out of them. And actually, it always works out. It really does.
0: But acting is one of these things, isn't it? Because you obviously can have people who train and go to the theater school and drama school. But then sometimes you get somebody who comes in who has no training, but they have that natural ability to be somebody else or to improv.
1: Yeah. In that case, <laughs> you know, I mentioned that the actor... Um, Who I had hired. I I wrote this part and I wrote it for my youngest son because I've directed them in plays at their school over the years. And I know he and his brother to be natural actors. They're not interested in it, weren't one's a top architect and another is in the medical field and everything else. So they, you know, it's like, you know, that's dad's thing. So, but I always wanted to work with, and I knew that. They both had these wonderful qualities. So I asked him to play this part. And of course he said no, because they don't do what the father, they want the father to do. So uh, I said, you'll have a lot of fun. But I couldn't persuade him. So in the end, I hired another actor who was a good actor. I was very happy to have him to play the part. Well, he got COVID the day of the thing so by the way first i offered it to my younger son then i offered it to my older son and my older son uh his girlfriend lady is having a baby so he said no i can't do it so i said okay i'll hire this actor i hired the actor and i was really grateful that I, i i went to a like a self-defense killing thing. And he was a classically trained actor, but he also knew how to do all the fights and everything. Uh, real killing skills. And I said, it's an action film. Great. So I hired him. Uh, he's all excited about doing it. Then he gets COVID the morning where to shoot him. So I called my youngest son. I said, Sam, you got to help your old man out. And he got in his car and he drove down and he did the part. And my wife was, who's a brilliant negotiator, talked to him and everything. So I ended up as one of the tiny little experiments with this film. He did, he, he was thrown right in the mix. Didn't even have time to study anything. I don't th- he couldn't even read the script until three or four days in when we hit the first weekend. And, but I had such a great thing because he got to see what his dad does for a living. And he did, he really delivered the goods. And so um, I was...
0: It was a spontaneous moment. Yeah. And also
1: to me, Simon, it was destiny. He was always meant to play that part, no matter what happened. And the universe, God, whatever you want to call it, wasn't going to keep him away from doing that part.
0: Deep down, he's an actor.
1: Yeah. Yeah. On the surface, he's a non-actor, but he's an actor. He's maybe the number one architect from the college of of School of Design, California College of Design in San Francisco. And he is a brilliant artist, but he's also a brilliant actor. And it was just so wonderful for him and his wife to sit there in a darkened space and watch Costa's Mandalore and I. Act. and my son you know you know you know sons they go oh dad it's like me when my oh my dad's in insurance yeah so what big deal you're so self involved and my son is not self involved but at the time i was my father you know i didn't even know what my father did for a living
0: kids don't take the interest until later
1: yeah well when my father was on his deathbed i said what did you do in world war 2 and he said well, well we went ashore, and we got trapped by 200 Japanese people, and it was like the Civil War, and we were fighting with sticks and coconuts and stuff, and I got stabbed in the thigh with a bayonet, and I shot this fellow wow. three times in the chest with a forty-five. And I mean, you know, we don't. We don't even think about it. But the bottom line is I think my son got a sense of, wait a second, there's a supreme discipline in what my father does. That that, that this isn't just listen to Grand Funk Railroad and go out there and become an actor. It's not. Um, So I'm blessed.
0: That's a great thing that he got the opportunity to do that. Yeah. For you then, because a lot of these movies were action movies and are action movies and you work, you know, a lot of these movies also have been martial arts movies and kind of around that style. For you then when you were an athlete and you you know got your body in great position or great condition, sorry. Did you do a lot of martial arts before you went into acting or was it something you kind of picked up fighting skills through the the you know the genre of cinema?
1: It was the latter. Um but I had been a football player a baseball player, a basketball player, a collegiate wrestler, a horseback—you uh, know, I, I competitively horseback rode and jumped. I had been a swimmer and a lifeguard, um, so I had been shooting guns since I was about. I think I got a double-barreled shotgun when I was nine, and I had a twenty-two rifle when I was younger. Okay. I'd been driving a tractor since I was probably eight years old on my father's farm. So I had all of this stuff. And then when I, you know, as a villain, they were always putting guns in my hands. So I started studying with LAPD and Navy uh, SEALs and Marine Recon. And I found I actually enjoyed that as a martial art. Mostly I was, when it came to the actual martial arts part of it, and I do think shooting is definitely a martial art. But mostly when it came to the hand-to-hand combat, I was just working out a dance and, and learning it on the tank the and kind of playing with it. I did study boxing for a while. I did do jujitsu for a while. Um, I've done Krav Maga a little bit, uh, knife fighting a little bit. I call it movie black belt. You do what you, it's the same thing if you had to say you had to do ballroom dancing for something or the guitar. We were talking about the guitar. I was, what I really loved doing was picking up a new skill. And so when it came to shooting, you have rifle, shotgun, pistol, long distance sniping, urban carbine. Uh, You have different schools of there's there's the traditional isosceles triangle shooting there's center axis relock shooting which is kind of like muay thai versus karate
0: um so um it's different ways of manipulating your body for a, a, a different effect
1: exactly yeah so um I love languages. I love doing dialects. All my young actors, I say, it doesn't even cost you a dime. Go online and and say, how do I talk like a Serbian? And figure it out. And you'll know it enough that you'll be able to book the job. And then when you book the job, then get a vocal coach and fine-tune it so that it's perfect when you get on there.
0: What's interesting, isn't it, that through the years... All of the villains, most of them have been like Serbians, Albanians, Russians, you know, maybe Koreans, Chinese in some movies. But it's kind of been more towards the East always.
1: Well, yeah. And also we're in this God help you if you want to make a black guy a bad guy. Yes, I understand. You know, you know, it's construed as racism. Right. Yes. In fact, it's not. It's just you're trying to create people. So, um, we've gone through a period where uh, black people, which is probably rightly so, and i'm I'm glad for that conversation, but you know, it's like every black person in the world isn't a judge every every black person in the world isn't a dynamic attorney um uh, so the you know we live in a life this i mean Eddie Redmayne, got torn a new one because he played a transgender person and won an Academy award in a movie that was, had transgender people playing straight people. So after a while, it gets a little crazy. Um, Now again, it's a net positive because black people deserve to be treated with nobility and dignity, just as every race does. I don't know if you can do a Chinese villain with Disney's business relationship with with China. So, you know, you've got to of course the Serbians. Hey, everybody can hate the Serbians.
0: Let's get the Serbians. It goes back I suppose especially with the kind of US versus the Soviet Union propaganda war and the the Cold War sure. because it's like who are the villains? Well, oh no, it's it's not like you have the American heroes but and then the villain has to be on the opposite scale so the russian oligarch or you know all of these characters and even if yeah. if you look at um you know some of the best villains in the bond movies and everything they're always like from sure. switzerland or serbia they're always the same isn't it yeah
1: yeah, yeah there's no question it, it it becomes ridiculous when it goes too far um but Sometimes that's the world we live in. I uh, I loved what Costas Mandalore did as our villain in the movie. And uh, I knew he was going to be extraordinary. I knew he was going to be rich. And I, I, by the way, I met Costas. We both auditioned for the Serbian killer, mass killer, and I got the part. But he's okay. such an extraordinary man. He, with this Greek sensibility and this Australian sensibility, and this, he's an utterly unique person. And everybody's unique, but he is, Hunter Thompson said about his attorney, he was God's own prototype and never was seriously considered for mass production. Well, Costas, I don't think, was ever seriously considered for mass production, but the world would be a better place if there were more men. Like Costas in the world, um,
0: he's just extraordinary. You said something really interesting to me when we first chatted. On, I think it was on LinkedIn or somewhere we first connected, and I, we were joking. And, and uh, I said something to you about uh, being a nice villain, and you said to me, "Some of the be- some of the best villains are really nice guys," or something like that. And it's true because they're all nice guys. Yeah, they're all nice
1: guys. They're all nice guys because. I think they're just really great actors and maybe they get to exercise that demons out in that particular work. But I, I meet a lot of comedians who are really nice guys too. They're And they're so brilliant. Um, I want to, while we're talking, give a shout out to some of the people who worked on this movie, Dying for Living with Me. Stephen Colson, the cinematographer, is an absolute genius. Art Camacho, our stunt coordinator, a director in his own right. There were five guys on this movie who could direct. Uh, Stefan, Art Camacho, um, Jacob Ressler, my line producer and co-producer, Raffaello, you know, all of them do uh, all different kinds of things. The movie is the sum total. Heidi, my wife, they're they're everybody on the movie, and I and people I think will love. We've got a set of twins in the movie. That's a whole other story. They're brilliant. Brilliant. Curtis Bradley uh, is, plays a, a, a wonderful part. Sydney uh, Olson is uh, uh, Tajana Neva. Um, there's just so many extraordinary people and collaborators on this movie that I'm so grateful for all of them.
0: It sounds really interesting.
1: Well, uh, our teaser is about to go out. Uh, distributors have seen it, and they're really enthralled, and I'm very gratified. Hegan Machado, eight-time, you asked about martial arts. Hegan is, they call him the Gracie Killer. He is, yes. he's uh, what, eight-time world jiu-jitsu champion?
0: Eight-time world champion, yeah. yes, yes. Uh,
1: extraordinary. And he's an
0: amazing fighter. He's an amazing
1: actor, too, because we've, Got a great performance with him. Wonderful human being. Olivia Gruner, superb guy. Doesn't speak
0: French, but he's he's brilliant. But another great actor. And I haven't seen him around for a while. Well, he works regularly. He
1: did a TV series I did with him called The Circuit. Uh, I don't know if it's come out yet, but he's wonderful in our movie. His son is in our movie, too uh, Holt, he brought onto the set and we, of course, uh, uh, plugged him in as a villain. And, uh, um, who else? I mean, the, we had a gl- glam team that was great. Victoria, uh, Pasciutto, wonderful still photographer and art director, uh, Victoria Vlasenko, uh, wardrobe, Philip Solomon, all of these people were just incredible. And, and, uh, I'm really blessed we put a tremendous team together and onward and upward. You asked about ambition. Yes. I don't know that it's ambition so much as that I have children that I want to see them go to school college. That's what I call these film projects and they deserve to to go to be shepherded. Um and so onward and upward.
0: So when you look back now, you know, through all those as you said all well over 200 roles and movies is there any or one or two that really stand out for you that you say, I, I was, you know, a villain in a lot of these movies, but the- this role in particular really was, you know, my baby. I really enjoyed this one. Was there anyone in particular?
1: Honestly, Simon, there are so many that um, I, you know, I really do approach it like whatever role you're doing, you're there to serve the director, the writer, the audience, uh, your fellow workers. Um, I, uh I've had so many that I'm so grateful for. I mean, doing the Westerns with Tom Selleck and Sam Elliott and Simon Windsor, the great Australian director, written by Elmore Leonard, some of these things. I mean, it doesn't. And Louis Lemoore, it doesn't get better than that. Working with Spielberg, it doesn't get better than that. And Janos Kaminsky, the great cinematographer who. It's been teamed with uh, Stephen for many, many years. All the great actors, Colin
0: Farrell. With your career, and you've had such a varied career, whether it be journalism and then acting. But then, obviously, when we look at politics, so, you know, you you had a little fray into politics. Is that something you can see yourself pushing for in the future? Or did you have a taste and say, I don't know if that's for me now? How did you feel about that stint in your life?
1: Well, there are a couple of reasons why I did that. One is I think have you ever seen the great movie called Mephisto?
0: Yes, yes, I think I've seen it years ago yes,
1: yeah well i mean the the cautionary tale of that was that it's not really enough just to be an artist. You have to be engaged in your lifetime uh or that lifetime may be overtaken by people who are less than in their their soul. So the cautionary tale of Mephisto was he was a great artist and the Nazis gave him all the money to do these great shows. But of course, he really wasn't engaged with the fact that the money was coming from a great evil. Um, The reason I ran for governor was, there's a lot of dimensions to this, but I, I ran for governor because I really do think that there are solutions to our challenges. What was shocking about that whole thing was we were really the only ones who came up with a platform of solutions. Um, Most people just talk and they don't actually act. Um, The truth is, as a species, we have solutions to our challenges. But we are also governed to a great extent by people who are motivated by greed, and by selfishness and uh, they have their things, but it's they're not doing what. If you look back at just in my country, George Washington and Thomas Jefferson and no, they weren't perfect people because in retrospect they some of them had slaves and stuff like that. But at the time, Thomas Jefferson and Benjamin Franklin and those guys they paid for their own. They put their fortunes on the line for the American experiment to come into being. And many of them, the, I think, of the signers of the Declaration of Independence, something like a huge number of them did not do well. They were caught by the British. They were uh, tortured. Some of them were hung. They lost their fortunes. But they put their 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 lives on the line for this idea that we have of freedom and democracy, and that goes back to Spartacus and all this. I'm not Spartacus, but if we don't participate in our political process, whether it's in Ireland or England or Ukraine or America or Taiwan or China or wherever, then if we don't influence that towards, as Abraham Lincoln said, our better angels, then our children may be in deep trouble. And, um, you know, I think I read some time ago, 37% of the Earth's population lives in a place where freedom of speech is actually acknowledged. And now it's down to about 31%. Now, the good news is we've got Internet and social media and all of this other stuff. I think China is probably looking at the Ukraine right now and going, Maybe we better not invade Taiwan. You know, the Taiwan people, if you look at that situation in its origins, there weren't any good guys. Chiang Kai shek was probably killed 2 million people. He was an authoritarian dictator. But 31 million people, free people, do live in Hong Kong and they do live in Taiwan. And those people need to be bolstered, just as the people in the Ukraine desire to be free. So, You have a choice in life. You you can say, oh, these people have been killing each other forever. What difference does it make? I just want to enjoy my life. Or you can say, no, I'm going to stand as my father did uh, for the idea of America, even if it is not a perfect ideal. The ideals that it was founded on were things that are worthy of people putting their lives on the line. 500,000 American uh, boys died in World War II. That's not a lot when you compare Russia's 20 million that died in in that Holocaust. But that doesn't give Putin the right to bully people uh, who just wish to be free. So the reason I do that is because— No. What movie is this from? It's a great movie. We all got to die sometime. Just a matter of when.
0: Just a matter of when. I know the line, but I can't place the movie. What's the movie?
1: Well, it's from a great movie starring Paul Newman called Ombre. Oh yes. The truth is, and it was also written by Elmore Leonard. The bottom line is, we all die sometime. It's just a matter of how we live. And. I think it's better to have stood on the side of our better angels than to have stood on the side of authoritarianism and uh, control of other people and turning other people into slaves.
0: You're right in that sense, because I think as an actor or an artist or somebody who has a public voice as well and a following, it's it's good when you can take that into politics and, you know, make changes. Now, of course, as you said, everybody, nobody's perfect. And the minute you put yourself on that podium or on, in the public spectrum, people are going to try and tear you apart and say, well, you're not fit to be this and you're only a, a, you know, a, a cover person. But the thing is, it's a brave yeah. thing to do to take yourself out of what you're doing and say, I'm going to put myself in the political spectrum and try and do some good work here.
1: Well, I don't have a problem with that. The bottom line is, I think... They asked Norman Mailer once, why do you spend all that time writing those novels? That's a lot of work. And he said, the cost of not doing it is just as great as the cost of doing it. Wow. So the truth is, we are who we are, and um, you have to be who you are. And I think at my core, just like my dad, I'm a sons of the American Revolution. That doesn't mean anything for me, but my ancestors... You know, Britain won the World War in the revolutionary times. The only part that didn't get won was the American Revolution. So um, would I do politics again? I think almost every movie I do contains political stuff in it. And by the way, I get told all the time to remove it. Okay. So, you know, uh, I'm not doing History lessons when I do movies, but there is a place for a line or two or here to articulate: um, freedom isn't free, and people have sacrificed a lot for us to be who we are. And the the enemy is inside all of us. You know that st- saying: "Absolute power." Uh, corrupts, absolutely. Corrupts,
0: absolutely, yeah. Before I let you go, yeah. tell us the, the working title of the movie, and is it going to remain that? And when do you think, like obviously I know distribution and so on, but when do you think it might come out?
1: Well, I'm going to send you the te- the trailer teaser, so perhaps you can use it on this show.
0: Okay, perfect.
1: I say one qualitative step at a time, Simon. <laughs> It's all a poker game and it's all got to be played (laughs) with as much uh, altruism and skill and benefit. Um, But I think it'll come out pretty quickly. The distributors seem to really want it. We've got to go back out and shoot some connective tissue and another location. That's the first step. And then, of course, we've got a brilliant editor that's got to be done. And so, uh, I think we'll probably be making a deal with his distributor long before we finish the movie, but um, uh, one qualitative step at a time.
0: Brilliant. That's really good. And your book, your next book, is that something that like you have kind of half finished or will we see that in the future? No, I, I said I, I was
1: polishing it. Yes, you will.
0: Yeah. Um, I, you know, I don't like,
1: papers lying around my office (laughs) so um
0: your wife is uh, saying publish it or i'm gonna bin it
1: (laughs) no she's my editor and believe me you know um you know years ago i wasn't much of a fan of marriage because of the difficulties with my mother and things like that but uh being married to my lovely wife has made me know the challenges of marriage but also it's made me an advocate of it and um um i she's involved in everything i do and so the the polishing of the pages and it's already written i could i've got to read through it and make sure everything's relevant because we're all evolving simon every day um just as the american experiment the human experiment we're all evolving and What was written three years ago, even though it's relevant because it has to do with jobs I did uh, before, that's all positive. But even post-COVID, we live in a different world. So I just have to make sure it's the best reflection of who I am and who Uncommon Dialogue Films is and all of that. It'll come out. It'll come out.
0: Patrick, it's been an absolute... Thank you so much. Thank you. It's been a pleasure to chat to you. And uh, as you said, you used that word insightful a few times. And this has been an insightful interview because, you know, I don't like to ask the obvious questions about particular movies because you can watch the movie and see that. I like to kind of go deeper in the train of thought, you know, about that. And, you know, what kind of spurred you on to become who you are. And, you know, I have to say, you know, to having watched a lot of your movies growing up, And, you know, seeing your characters and your personas, you were a very strong character in the movies. And, you know, I think you've left a huge impression on so many movies. And I think you'll leave a huge impression on so many more movies to come. So I want to say well done and thank you very much for coming on the show.
1: Thank you so much. I I go into specifics of many different shows in the book, so that may be a a helpful resource to those who are fans of those individual shows. But God bless you. I'll see you soon. Stay out of trouble.
0: Thank you. Patrick Kilpatrick, everybody. Thank you. Thank you very much, Patrick. It was a pleasure having you on the show and having seen you in the movies and on TV for years and opposite Jean-Claude Van Damme and Schwarzenegger and all of those action heroes. And you played the perfect villain. And, you know, how cool is it? The perfect villain is an absolute gentleman in real life. It was such a pleasure to talk to you and I want to commend you on the body of work you've done. It's been amazing and some amazing TV shows, some amazing film shows, but also some amazing work in the community and some amazing work in universities and also running for governor. It's just such an ambitious life and we want to thank you very much for coming on the show. It's been a pleasure and we hope to have you on again. Thank you so much, Patrick. Patrick Kilpatrick, everybody. Okay, everybody, hope you enjoyed the show today. And we can promise you more amazing guests. And stay tuned. Follow the show wherever you can. And please follow, subscribe, like, whatever you want to do. We appreciate it all. Thank you so much. And remember, take care of yourself, take care of your family. Look on the bright side of life. And until we meet again, my name is Simon K. This is the Collective Whisper Podcast. Thank you very much. Bye-bye.